Good morning and welcome again to In Town Church. We're so delighted to have you in worship with us. And if you're visiting for the first time, you're here at a, a good time. Uh, we are starting a brand new series on the Gospel of Luke that will run up until the time of uh, Lent and then pick up afterwards uh, to finish before we get to the summer. And if you've looked at the passage, you may be wondering, well, if this is the beginning, why are we in Luke 4 already? Well, let me just give you a bit of background. One is that we just finished Advent, and the first three chapters in the first part of uh, chapter 4, we used a lot of, some from Luke, some from the other gospel uh, writers, to uh, talk about the story of Jesus' birth and how he got to where he is in our passage this morning. Uh, and then also, this is where Luke begins to tell the story of Jesus' public ministry. So this is a real clear division in the Gospel of Luke, where we feel like we've got the narrative leading up to this point. And so that's why we're beginning this morning in Luke uh, chapter 4. You can follow along in your bulletin if you have one. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind." to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened upon him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, prophets are not accepted in their hometowns. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are all coming from many different backgrounds this morning, but what binds us together is our need of you. Whether we admit that or not, whether we are aware of that or not, I pray that you would help us to see that we stand in great need of grace, in great need of mercy. I pray that this story would help to detail that for us, would convict us of sin, would convict us of how we have lived independent of you, even if we have been Christians for many years. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through this passage. Would you give us grace? Would you give us mercy? Because we need it so badly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we're going to do something just very quickly this morning because we've had so much going on this morning. I'm going to try and compress the sermon down into just a few minutes. But there are three points, all three of them very briefly. Um, the background of this sermon that Luke gives, the backlash to the sermon, and then the bearing of this sermon upon our lives. Uh, he introduces, Luke does, Jesus' ministry with this sermon, and it's a one-liner. And so we're going to look first just at the background. Where does this come from, this passage in Isaiah that we actually read earlier in our service? What's the background to this? Because Jesus sees that as setting up his ministry, why he is doing what he's doing. Now, he went into the synagogue to preach, as Luke says, as was his custom. And Jesus is very well known at this point. We see in verses 14 and 15, Luke kind of presses fast forward on the TiVo button, and he covers a lot of ground, perhaps many months. So at this point, Jesus is very well known in the synagogue, and he is a rabbi that would go and sit down in the synagogue and teach and would be recognized there as an authority. So he's handed the scripture to read. And what would happen is they would have these two rolls where they would unroll one while they rolled up the other. And that's how they read. And they would translate it. They'd read it first in Hebrew and then translate it into Aramaic because most people in that uh, area of the world spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. And so the passage would be translated and then the reader would sit down to interpret the text. So the listeners were standing and the preacher was sitting. I like that. I think we need to be a bit more biblical at InTown. <laughs> he reads this passage, Isaiah 61, and it's known as one of the servant of the Lord's passages. And this is a very mysterious figure in the Old Testament. The servant of the Lord is someone who's going to come and finally bring in peace, bring in restoration, bring in justice for all of the oppressed. Now he's read the passage, and he has to explain it. And he gives a one-sentence sermon. Wouldn't you like us to be more biblical too? He says, today, this scripture, what you read in the prophet Isaiah, what I have just read to you, today is fulfilled in your hearing. Audacious. It is an incredible claim for him to make. Me, the guy that lives down the street, the carpenter's son, I am he. My life is an exposition of this sermon. I am this sermon. And how do they respond? Well, they liked it. They're not offended at all. It says, this is Joseph's son. And many have taken that to be a kind of dubious claim. Well, how can the prophet be this carpenter from down the street? He's one of us. But no, it's not. It's civic pride in the sense. They're saying, this is Joseph's son. He's one of us. The Messiah had to come from somewhere. And so Nazareth is certainly somewhere. There's a bit of civic pride. They're not dubious. They like the sermon. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words. Now, the servant of the Lord, who is this mysterious figure from the Old Testament that Jesus is claiming to be? He would come to act as God's agent to bring about healing and peace and renewal especially to those who are disenfranchised, especially to those who are oppressed and poor. And so these hearers, these Nazarenes have a grid. They have a filter that they're putting this passage through. It says, we're the good people. We believe the Bible. We obey the Bible. But we're under the thumb of this foreign oppressive empire. They're loose people. They're sexually immoral people. 
And what the Messiah is coming, the servant of the Lord is coming to do, is to right this wrong. He's going to put the bad people out of business and put the good people on top. That's us. He's going to put us on top. Of course they're happy. This is Jacob's son. He's come to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. He's come to put the good people on top and throw out all of these bad, immoral, sexually loose people. So, of course, they're happy. If their grid is right, if their filter is right, then all of the hard work that they've put into following the law, into obedience, into being good people is about to pay off in a big way. But then like that, something changes, and they respond very, very differently to Jesus. They understand finally what he gets at as he exposits the passage further, and there's a great backlash. They like what Jesus had to say at first because they heard what they wanted to hear. They thought they were getting what they finally deserved, finally getting what they deserved. The Romans were occupying their land, and Israel deserved something better than that. After all, they were God's chosen people. So certainly one day, that servant of the Lord, that root of Jesse, all of the prophecies of the Old Testament that would come true in that one person, that he would overthrow the oppressive thumb of, of Rome. And so all of this talk about the poor and the outcast and the disenfranchised and the oppressed is simply interpreted to mean us. We're the outcast. We're the disenfranchised. We are the ones that have been put out of power. He's talking about us. But Jesus, seeing right through what they're thinking, kind of says, before you go and get too ecstatic about this, let me tell you what I'm really saying. Let me tell you a few stories about what it really means to be poor, what I mean when I say poor. And he starts with this rather cryptic phrase, at least cryptic to us. He says, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what you have heard that you did in Capernaum. Now, this takes a bit of interpretation, but what Jesus is understanding is they don't get what he's talking about. They don't get his mission. They don't buy in to what he's really doing. They don't understand the gospel because why? They liked the sermon. The religious, the good people who finally understand the implications of the gospel are scandalized. They're offended. That's what happens when the gospel is preached is that religious people that have built their identity upon their uh, adherence to a moral code are scandalized by the gospel. They don't like the gospel. So Jesus knows that there's something wrong. They've missed it because at first they liked it. And so now he's got to extrapolate what he's really getting at, what he's really saying. The gospel is offensive and scandalizing because it exposes all of our deserving mentalities. It it exposes our pride. It exposes all of the ways that we build artificial barriers around what God can and cannot do, artificial barriers around who is the type of person that God extends his grace to. Religious people say, it's people like me. Good people say, it's people like me. They liked him because he was a hometown hero. He was on their team. The problem with the world was not themselves. The problem with the world was that they we're not in power. And Jesus was about to change that, but he sees right through them that what they're wanting is his patronage. What they're wanting is his backing. They want him to get behind their agenda and put them in power. 
Do what you've done for others. Do it for us. And then he brings up Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is one of the Old Testament prophets who does ministry to this widow at Zarephath. And Elijah, Elisha, does ministry to Naaman, the Syrian. And if the part about the healing yourself in Capernaum and doing what, what you did there, do it with us, infuriating them, this sends them into a murderous rage. Jesus is lifting up the wrong people. God doesn't love those people. He loves us. Now notice these two people. He's talking about the outcast, the oppressed, particularly the poor, that Jesus loves the poor. But he picks two people, one of which is rich. It means that Jesus' understanding of poor is much larger than being economically impoverished. It certainly includes that, but it's much larger than that. What Naaman and the widow have in common is much greater than what distinguishes them. Though Naaman was not actually poor, they're both spiritually impoverished. They're religious and social and moral outcasts. The widow was not only a Gentile, a pagan worshiper, but she's a woman. She's a second-class citizen in the ancient world. She's on the outside of all of the religious and moral standards of Israel, and so is Naaman. He's an idol worshiper, in fact, a commander in the enemy army. And Jesus is saying that he only comes to the widow and to Naaman. Do you get that? He doesn't say, I come to them too. He says, I come to them only. These people, these Nazarenes, would not have thrown him, tried to throw him over a cliff for him to say, I come to Naaman and the widow as well. The Old Testament is full of commands to the Israelite nation to include the foreigner, to take care of the alien in your midst, to take care of the widow. These are very specific commands throughout all of the Old Testament. And so if the Messiah comes and says, okay, that's what I'm going to finally help you to do. I'm going to, <clears throat> I'm going to empower Israel, but I also want to include these other people. Most likely that would have been fine. He may have gotten a little pushback, but certainly they wouldn't have been flown into a murderous rage. What he's saying is not that I come to them as well. I come to them only. I only come to Naaman. I only come to the widow. You see, Luke says, Jesus says, there are many widows in Israel during the time of famine that I could have come to. There are plenty of widows that I could have come to, but I chose the widow of Zarephath instead. I went to a Gentile. I went to a moral leper. I went to an outcast to explain to you what my mission is all about, to help you see what it really means to belong to God. There were many actual lepers in Israel in the Old Testament, but God chooses Elisha to go to Naaman, a Syrian commander, an idol worshiper, and cure him. There are plenty of good people that God could have chosen There are plenty of morally upstanding people that God could have chosen to reach out to, to heal of their leprosy, to heal of their economic impoverishment. But he chooses Naaman. He chooses a widow. He chooses Gentiles. He chooses bad people. And those listening certainly understand this. It's not that he comes to those people too, that they can be included in the camp of good people. He comes only to those people. And those listening were incensed. 
They were enraged so much that they would drive him out. They knew that not only was he including them, but he was excluding his audience. He was including the irreligious and excluding the religious. He was including those who had no claim upon God and excluding those who thought they had every claim upon God. He sees his mission as being to those who see themselves as undeserving. What qualifies you to receive God, to receive his spirit, to receive Jesus' mission? It's a brokenness of spirit. It's a poverty of heart. It's seeing yourself in absolute spiritual destitution. It's seeing yourself as having no other hope except Jesus' mercy, except God's grace. The widow, she's totally impoverished. She's at the end of her rope. She has no hope. Her only hope is Jesus. Her utter, he's utterly dependent upon God. Naaman, a social outcast, a leper. He's a commander in the army. He's probably rich, and yet he's a leper. His only hope to re-enter the community is God. The Messiah has come, you see, what Jesus is saying in this passage, to include the most disreputable, disgusting, marginal people and exclude those who think they have every reason that God would come to them and include them. And that was too much. It dawned on them what Jesus was actually saying. He wasn't pandering to them. He wasn't their hometown hero. Their civic pride was gone because what he was saying is that you're out and these people are in. You don't get it, but these people do. What it takes is a brokenness of spirit, an undeserving mentality, and then I come to you. They take him to a cliff to throw him off. Can you imagine? One moment he's in the synagogue reading the scroll, and they're clapping politely. He's had a claim everywhere, and now they're driving him out of town to throw him off a cliff. And if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about the desert as a place of Christmas. What did we see the devil, what did we see Satan tempting Jesus with? Go up to the top of the temple, throw yourself down, and God will send his angels to rescue you. Do you see what Luke is doing here just a few passages later? He is saying that just as what that's what Satan said is actually true. But what Jesus said is, you know, no, I don't do parlor games. I don't do cheap stunts. I'm not going to throw myself off the temple just for your personal laugh. But when it comes time where Jesus really needs to be protected, God is for him. God comes and rescues him. And we don't have a lot of details. It just says that he went through the crowds and made his way because it wasn't his time yet. It wasn't his time to die. God was saying, as we are very accustomed to in this political uh, climate, that I approve this message. Did you, hear, did you hear all of what he said about the oppressed and the poor, the outcast being included? What God is saying is that I approve this message. He is the Messiah. He is the servant of the Lord. And I will rescue him and I will take care of him until such time as it is time for him to pay the penalty for the sin of the world. We see applause to attack. We see the background of the sermon leading to this backlash against Jesus. And now finally, let's just conclude by looking at the bearing of the sermon. 
the bearing of the sermon on your life and on mine. The people who heard Jesus were good people. They were religious people. I'm sure they paid their bills. They tended to their chores. They tended to their religious duties. They educated their children. They were upright, pillars of the community. And for them, believing in the God of their fathers meant living out in earnest and with terrific devotion what God wanted, what they read in his law. They were bound and determined to do and to follow. But sadly, the God who, that they longed for was not the God that they showed up, that showed up, that stood before them. They were living a carefully constructed, biblically based, culturally reinforced, very false understanding of God. It's not the dutifulness and compliance and attentiveness to what God desires is, doesn't get scriptural attention. It gets lots of scriptural intention. It's just that when we begin to try and apply that to follow what Scripture says, we miss the point. And then in our obedience, we actually move farther away from God. We drive a wedge between Him and what He really wants to do in our lives because we're so focused on how good we're doing. We're looking at our feet while we're dancing. We're saying, God, look at me. Look how I've improved. Look how much better I've gotten. Look how much better than I am than I, than I am than that person. Let me talk just briefly to both of us in this room. There's two types of people here. There's, there's so, those of us who have encountered Jesus, who at some point in our lives have encountered his spirit and have said, yes, Jesus is all that I can place my hope upon. And we have staked out our journey on the basis of his life, on the basis of his work. And others, others of us in the room are still questioning, wondering if that could be our story as well. We may be still quite skeptical that this is true. Let me just try to give the bearing of this sermon upon uh, both of us in this room. For the Christian, at some point, you're going to begin to congratulate yourself for goodness, for your obedience, for your behavior. You know, sure, you're, you're, not, as, you're not a super Christian, and you can talk about your sin, but it's still very easy for you, for you to find examples of people who simply must not be included in God's grace. It's very easy, even though talking about how sinful you are, to identify sin in other people's lives and to feel then better about yourself. We're very quick to find people that we stack up against pretty favorably. And in that sense, we're in, the da- in danger of becoming just like these Nazarenes. God's on your team. He reinforces all your values. He approves your decisions, and he claps politely for how well you're doing and how you're improving. The Nazarenes were good people. They read the Bible. They went to synagogue, and then God himself shows up. He busts through their filters. He breaks down and destroys the grids by which they had read Scripture up until this time. He shows up and says, I don't owe you anything. Your religiosity hasn't earned you anything. In fact, your goodness has driven you away from me. He says, look, I don't need good people. I don't need religious people. Elijah and Elisha had plenty of those people that they could have gone to, and yet they chose those who were the very farthest from the kingdom, the very farthest from goodness. The spiritual wealthy in this room, the one percenters in this room, aren't surprised when God comes to them, but are unsettled 
maybe incensed when he goes to those who are unlike them, the spiritually poor, the spiritually impoverished in this room are not surprised that God would go to other people, but are astonished that he would come to us. That we would say, me? Really? God, you're coming to me? There's an astonishment that God would choose to bring his presence into your life. And that's a sign- signifying that you're spiritually poor, that you're in the place where Jesus can move into your life in a real way. The spiritual mature, the 1% aren't surprised when God comes to them. It just makes sense, but are very surprised and incensed when he goes to other people unlike him. The spiritually poor are not surprised that God would extend his grace to other people, but are astonished that they would be the recipients of God's grace. Now, maybe you're here and you haven't yet figured out what you think about Jesus. You're still looking in around from the periphery. You're here this morning, you're skeptical. Maybe you've even been hurt by the church, hurt deeply. You've seen things about it you don't like, and you look at, um, you stand outside because of the people on the inside. They're hypocrites, they're greedy, they're political, and maybe you have a point. And you reason, well, God can't be among them. God can't be here because look at these people. Well, you've become a Nazarene, just like the self-righteous Christians in our midst. What's blocking you from Jesus is the very same thing that's blocking these religious zealots from coming to faith, from coming to Jesus. Your irreligion is no better than their religion. You've simply changed the terms. The gospel, friends, is for only the spiritual poor. It's especially for the actual poor. And the gospel is only for those who are willing to be both. If you're spiritually proud, if you're conceited, even if you're just content, when the real Jesus shows up, you'll throw him off. You'll want to throw him off the cliff. If you're spiritually hungry, if you're spiritually open-minded, if you're spiritually receptive, if you're spiritually poor, if you're truly a seeker, then when Jesus shows up, you'll be amazed and endeared and say, really, me? You can include me? Friends, Jesus, who is actually spiritually rich, impoverished himself for you. He puts himself in the opposite position. Though he's rich, he becomes poor. He becomes the captive. He becomes blind. He becomes oppressed. So that you, who are actually impoverished, though you may not know it, can become rich. Friends, take hold of that. As we come to the table and talk about how many ways Jesus fills our need. He meets our hunger. He meets our neediness. Would you take hold of Jesus? Would you think of yourselves as spiritually impoverished? Whether you have been a Christian for many years, whether you're still on the outside looking in, what is true about both of us, what binds us together, what is actually more uh, similar than our differences is that we are spiritually needy people. Take hold of Jesus and let him feed you from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, and we thank you that uh, you have meddled in our lives this morning, that you've meddled with our presuppositions, that you have shaken us up. Lord, whether we have read this passage 
dozens if not hundreds of times before or whether it's brand new and we're skeptical whether this could all be true. Would you meet us? Would you walk into our hearts, into our lives, into our stories? Would you read and tell us the story of Jesus again and let us respond not as the Nazarenes did, but let us respond as the widow. Let us respond as the leper, those who are deeply in need of grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.